Someone has to tell me. All right. Uh, live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm your host, Sean McCrane. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we need you. I need you. Pray for people who are seeking truth. We look for them, uh, religious folk who feel they have all the answers. Uh, let them go on, turn the channel, and, and find something that will speak to them. But this is for people who are willing and wanting to challenge so that we can learn and grow. We pray for your spirit to be with us, be with our, our, uh, our volunteers who give their time to keep things going. We're so grateful, and, and uh, pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Just a few announcements quickly. Dan Weiss, he was a guest on our show a while back. Uh, he shared some amazing volumes of cross-referenced and corrected books on the Book of Mormon. He forgot to mention that uh, those books are available here in Salt Lake at the downtown city library. And I told Dan I would remind you guys, it's been several weeks and I've forgotten. I apologize to him. So I'm telling you now, so go check those out. Literally, go check them out. They're in the library. Also, uh, we launched a GoFundMe for Christy Johnson. You can read all about it on the GoFundMe or on, on uh, a Facebook, Christy went uh, in today. She's been in the hospital since Friday to get a heart cath and uh, she still needs your financial help to uh, battle with life and the cause to get the LDS Church to be transparent and so consider GoFundMe. Um, it's called Helping Christy Johnson Fight, I believe. Uh, what prompted me to do that GoFundMe was uh, McKenna Denson. You know her probably by uh, the fact that she's the one who went to the LDS ward recently and stood up and uh, they're in their fast and testimony meeting and called out a man who allegedly raped her um, there and I called McKenna today and we had a very good phone conversation very direct very open uh, uh, she is going to be on our show on Tuesday the 25th and I challenged her with some things that if I was to challenge her um, on Facebook, for instance, there would probably be a cry of me being a real ass. Uh, but I, 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 in order for us to have an open dialogue, I had to see how she would respond and what she would say to the things that uh, I have to think about as someone who's hosting the show. Uh, anyway, I was very uh, impressed with her straight up direct answers to these questions. And uh, I look forward to hearing uh, from her and her case and her life uh, with the LDS Church and, and uh, against Joseph Bishop. That's Tuesday, September 25th. We're gonna be begin a three-part interview, which is gonna be pre-recorded simply because it's doubtful that we can fit it all in on uh, a given night. Um, uh, that's gonna take us out to October 16th. As an FYI, Tuesday, October 30th, that's gonna be 364 days, almost one full year from when we launched Heart of the Matter 2.0 last October 31st. And on October 30th, we're going to make a very big announcement. Um, it's so important to this ministry, the announcement we're gonna make. And uh, I think it is, has more purpose really than everything we've done combined. And so one full year has gone by of 2.0. The announcement is coming, so stay tuned. So again, October 25th, uh, October 2nd, October 9th, McKenna Denson, and then October 30th, an important, an important announcement uh, that will cause all sorts of rejoicing and all sorts of consternation, and uh, really look forward to it. I've taken some heat recently for having Bill Allred of X96 Radio from Hell show here on the show. Some of my critics didn't think he brought anything good to the table, is how it was put. Uh, with good being defined as debatable topics or that he supported Christianity or was against Christianity necessarily. And this sort of stuns me because I found our talk together really beneficial. But I get why some people would have this reaction. It was because Bill is, was not as a person against Jesus. He wasn't against religion. He wasn't for religion. He's not for God. Bill was just a guy who was articulate and smart, and he really just doesn't care at all about uh, theological matters. He didn't bring anything to the table. At the opening of the show, I explained that I had Bill on to illustrate that there is a segment of society who are like Bill. They don't have some big uh, ax to grind against uh, Jesus. They don't have a big ax to grind for God. 
They just are kind of indifferent. And that kind of represents probably a lot of people. So I think there is value when we step into the minds of people like that and uh, who are not like us. They don't think like a Christian. They don't think anything like us. And I think that it really helps to open up our minds to a new way of seeing how the world actually works and thinks. There's nothing more disgusting, in my view, than a, like, a TBN show where there's a stage full of people wandering around and scratching each other's back because they all agree that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus is Lord. They all agree Jesus is Lord. We all agree Jesus is Lord. And to spend show after show after show talking about that, sure, we can do that on Sunday, but can't we try to reach out to people who might think differently so we can learn how to engage with them, to share with them the fact that Jesus is Lord? So I thank Bill for taking the time to be himself, to share his heart, and giving us access to that even though there's some naysayers who are being bitter about it. Uh, finally, before we get to our content for tonight's program, I want you to take a look at the following spot for Talking to Mormons. But before you do, Talking to Mormons is on YouTube and Facebook. And get connected with Heart of the Matter on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can check out the description below to learn more. I'm being trained so well for these things. Uh, so, but anyway, let's take a quick look at a spot for talking to Mormons. Okay, elders, we agreed last time to review one of the 11 gospel topic essays found on LDS.org. The specific essay I want to discuss with you this time is the one titled Mother in Heaven, published on October 23rd, 2015. We're ready. It starts out by saying, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father, and a heavenly mother. That's right. We believe the human race lived in a pre-mortal existence with our heavenly parents. All people are begotten spirit children of God. It's interesting that even though the doctrine of Heavenly Mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints, nowhere is this doctrine taught in any of the LDS standard works. Neither is it found in any of Joseph Smith's recorded teachings. However, 10th President Joseph Fielding Smith explained the fact that there is no reference to a mother in heaven, either in the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or DNC, is not sufficient proof that no such thing as a mother did exist there. If we had a father, which we did, for all these records speak of him, then does not good common sense tell us that we must have had a mother there also? That's in Answers to Gospel Questions 3. 142. But until this essay was published in 2015, how could a Mormon know for sure there is even such a person known as a Heavenly Mother? Talking to Mormons, and you can check that out on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, by the way, I can't help but think that one elder is a little bit special. What's that elder's name, Seth? Elder Young, Elder Young, he's a great character. He's a great character. Anyway, uh, well, some of you know that I have recently got my feet wet on social media. You guys have been involved in it forever. I've gotten involved with it for other reasons. But in doing so, um, I've gotten involved with Facebook. And last week, I posted something that says, quote, proclamation out of real need. It said, proclamation out of real need. No epistle in the New Testament was written to you or me or anyone in this age. Please stop using them as if they were. And I posted this because in the days preceding, I was watching these Christians cite verse, verse, verse to throw all these people and use the Bible's epistles to condemn other people for different things that they were sharing on social media. And to me, it was really insidious and it was relentless. And if I closed my eyes and was able to read what they were saying and how they were saying it, you would feel like you were just in the middle of the Sanhedrin and that the Sadducees and Pharisees were, and the scribes were pulling from Scripture to condemn Jesus or his apostles or anybody else. It was so pathetic. Notice I didn't say in that thing, no epistle in the New Testament is applicable to us today. I didn't say that. Not at all. I believe completely it's a, they're applicable to us in the, in the majority. 
sense. It's spiritually, in terms of principles, right? Well, all I stated was the fact that the writers themselves addressed most of their epistles to the people then. And uh, this is really important because if we can start seeing the New Testament in this light, we will be more effective in living up to the great uh, uh, commandments, which are to love God and to love others. If we can start to see the New Testament in terms of it being a book that was written to them, but have spiritual application to us, spiritual, and step aside from all this dogma, we're going to be able to major in Christian love. Well, the fallout was pretty stupendous. I guess there's close to 500 comments on me posting that thing. And uh, really some weeping and wailing and gnashing, gnashing of teeth. And there were accusations of, of sinister intentions and accusations of antichrist and antichrist was used several times and and needing to be humble one uh, person said you need to be humble why did that person say that because they proved my premise wrong because the epistles were written to believers and because we are believers hence they were written to us because I didn't accept that, I was not humble. The faith is in serious trouble. I am personally convinced that if we had a proper eschatological view, that we could say we love the New Testament and the principles therein, but we have to just step back a little bit and look at to who they were given and why. I think it will really help us alleviate the infighting that goes on in Christian sex. S-E-C-T-S. So why don't people, I say that word sex, sex. And there's two people in our audience who always giggle, Patrick and Adam. They giggle. So I know what's on their mind. Anyway, uh, why don't people want to receive this simple view? It's very easy. Honest to God, you would think I crucified Jesus himself by saying it. And uh, I suggest that it's the result, listen, of the heinous man-made doctrine called Sola Scriptura, which was created by men in uh, the 1500s as a means to uh, make the scripture, the written word, the dogmatic go-to source for every thought, belief, action, behavior that's going on, you know, 2,000 years after the book was written to a people uh, back then. And uh, I think it's the fountainhead of all infighting uh, and, and, and um, misinterpretation, denominationalism, division, dogma, and on out to actual hate and venom, on out to an actual willingness to want people to be dead because they have a different view over what's in Scripture. Um, we have done shows on Sola Scriptura, so I'm not going to repeat all of it now. Uh, the problem didn't really start in the 1500s. It didn't start with Constantine. It didn't start really with the ch uh, early church leaders or fathers, as they call them. The problem started, listen carefully, the problem started in the faith when God took his apostles from the earth uh, along with his church bride took them away as a means to protect it from the gates of hell, which would surely have overcome it if it was allowed to tarry. Surely. God knew that after that happened in 70 AD, when he took his, when Jesus came and took his bride and saved it from imminent destruction, and all the apostles are then killed off and dead, John the, John the Beloved being the last one, God knew that there would be people from that point forward who would spend their lives flailing about trying to recreate brick-and-mortar religion in the name of what the New Testament uh, says. On out to the present. Folks, the victory was had. That book, the New Testament, is a wonderful summation of what God did in that age to have victory over all things so that we could live in an era where we don't have to hate where we don't have to get angry over uh, doctrinal disputes, where we don't have to have denominations. All, none of that is necessary in an age where the Spirit 
and the fruit of love of that spirit should abide among believers. But sola scriptura and this idea that we need a brick and mortar church is what has led to the situations that we're in today. So speaking of sola scriptura, I'm going to keep rolling forward. Our show tonight uh, is going to talk about a very sinister theology called uh, Reformed theology. I'm not going to talk about Reformed theology in the tulip uh, or what is known as Calvinism to some, five-point Calvinism. I embrace all Reformed theologians and believers as brothers and sisters, uh, but I think it is my view, just as I believe that if LDS people want to say that they, their view of God and the gospel is theirs and they love Jesus as the Lord, I'm going to say, hands off, go ahead, have at it. To the Calvinist, I say, go ahead, have at it. But in my estimation, the Calvinistic God is far more heinous than the Mormon one. I mean, I cannot relate to, the Calvin, to Calvin's God at all. I relate to the Mormon one far more. And the Mormon one is reprehensible relative to Scripture. So don't get me wrong. Now, apparently there was a recent debate. 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 There was a recent debate at Apologia Studios in Arizona. It's a reform-based studio. And what makes the debate interesting is that there's a reformed uh, debater named Jeff Durbin, who's very popular online. Uh, I've invited Jeff to be on the show, but he doesn't respond to any of my invitations because I think he knows that his uh, stances would be proven foolish. That's a challenge to you, Brother Durbin. Come on and let's talk. Not debate, talk. Uh, it was with Jeff Durbin and Dr. James White, who's been on the show, spent a lot of time with us, and I thought it was really uh, good. Uh, his people are saying he won, and my people say they're not sure what to think. But nevertheless, uh, I thought that was a, a good time spent. And there was another debate that's uh, out there, and it was with another apologist, reformed apologist, Aaron Shafafaloff, uh, who also has turned down, and if I mispronounce your name, Aaron, I'm sorry, but uh, he also turned down an opportunity to be on the show because he's just mad at me. <clears throat> anyway, uh, these Calvinists who have all the answers and have put God in this heinous box that is unbelievable to me, who are they debating? Uh, Durbin and White against this guy and then Shafaloff against this guy. A young black LDS man boy, I'm going to call him a man boy because he is young. He's a man child. He is a young kid. And his name is Kwatu L. Now this Kwatu L, by the way, I invited him to be on the show. He won't be on the show because he looked us up and he saw the man in white that was the LDS guy who painted his face white and wore the temple clothes on the show years ago. He saw that, wrote me back and said, I saw you dressed in our temple clothes and painted your face white, so I'm not going to be on the show. I wrote him back and said, that wasn't me. That was an active LDS guest who is on the show. I'm not going after you that way, Kwatu. He didn't care. He won't be on the show either. But in any case, there was a tag team debate with White and Durbin against Kwatu L, and then a single debate with Shafafalov against Kwatu, and that kid, he did a remarkable job in making them look like fools when it came to Calvinism. I find that ironic that you can take an LDS black man, child, young guy, to say a young guy, I don't mean disrespect, and he can go in with the big uh, weigh-in shooters of the faith in the West Coast, James White and, and, and Durbin and Shafaloff, and he can hand their heads to them. Uh, apparently, I have a good friend, and Kwatu uh, uh, got Durbin and White and then Shafaloff to admit that God wanted the Holocaust to happen, wanted, and he gloried in it. That's that, that's that crazy God I can't get. He's glorying in the Holocaust, right? They said that. And he also got Dr. White to say, quote, God predestined sex trafficking in the city of Houston where Kwatu is from. Predestined sex trafficking, which kind of leads to the idea that he is forcing people into sex trafficking. Predestined it. God help us. A good friend of mine, uh, he's very sharp, he wrote me and he said, I know Dr. White's a great debater, but the kid made him look absolutely ridiculous when it came to the Calvinist stuff. 
Now, you know I was LDS for 40 years, and then you know I had a roadside experience where Jesus changed my life, and that is with me today and will not leave, uh, contrary to popular opinion. Some of you know that after 15 years as a regenerated Christian, I stepped away from the non-biblical insanity of American evangelicalism uh, and all the things it purports to be true, and I'm now simply a, a lover and seeker of God and spirit and truth and a lover of man to the best of my ability. That being said, I would in a heartbeat accept the Mormon view of God in a heartbeat any day over a five-point Calvinist view. Uh, so it's sort of ironic that it took a young, black, African-American, LDS kid named Kwatu L to set these five-point Calvies straight. To me, God is moving on and out. He's using all sorts of things to reach people. And the dinosaurs of dogma who are just pounding the gavel on this must be seen this way, um, God is crushing them. He's crushing them with with unbelievable things that are telling other people that this dogma is ridiculous and it never should have been. I really think that we are in an age, and it's probably been going on for a hundred years, where enlightened thinkers who love God have been saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. But it's the loud voices and the pointing fingers of these Calvinists who say that you are not predestined to heaven, but are going to eternal hell. These dinosaurs of dogma are fighting it tooth and nail. And they're the ones screaming the loudest online that people are heretics. But when you step back and talk to most non-Calvinistic Christians, people of reason, people who know the scripture and love God, there is a shift going on where people are like, you know, I've never really understood eternal punishment. You know, I've never understood this. I've never understood that. And so instead of just talking more about Calvinism, I'm going to go into the scripture and I'm just going to show you one example. Some people at campus heard this a while ago. And I'm going to show you an example from scripture uh, how Calvinism, just using Ephesians 1, can be proven in their summations so badly off. I'm just some yokel who reads the Bible and loves it. I went to Calvary Chapel School of Ministry. It wasn't accredited. I didn't, I didn't learn a bunch of stuff to make me smart. I just read the Bible with my own eyes. So go with me to the first chapter of Ephesians. That's gonna, uh, and, and in Ephesians chapter one, we come upon some really interesting views that so many Calvinists have used on unsuspecting people to say, we are predestined. God has predestined us from the foundation of the world to be his followers. And they use Ephesians chapter 1 to prove it. Well, I want to use Ephesians chapter 1 to prove they're full of it. And I want you to test and challenge it. Don't believe me. Get your Bible out and read it along with me. Uh, so it's all about free will. Let's start in Ephesians 1 and learn together. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he says, to the faithful saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. Standard opener for Paul and most of his epistles, except this one, he does open it up to the faithful in Jesus Christ. You might say Ephesians is to everybody. Could be wrong on that one. Maybe it's to everybody. But I think it was primarily first to the people of Ephesus. And then he says, grace be to you. Another standard opener. And he writes, and peace from, he says, God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll say no more. But Paul is emphatically calls God the Father and our Father, God. And he refers to Jesus almost always as the Lord or the Savior, Jesus Christ. Always that. God the Father, Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's go to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He does it again there. Who has blessed us? with all spiritual blessings and how many places in Christ. Now, at verse three, we learn that God is the Father who blesses with all spiritual blessings, and we come upon something really important here. 
Our first us is mentioned by Paul. Our first us in these passages. He says, Blessed be God the Father Jesus, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, most readers of the Bible today will say, that us is me. I'm reading the Bible. Paul says us. I'm an us. It's me, right? And then they apply everything else that's said in the first verses of Ephesians 1 to themselves, thinking they're the us. It's wrong. I'm going to prove it, okay? So when we read us, we're so self-centered, we think, it's me as a believer. Here this us is speaking, not of us now, nor was it speaking of the believers then. What? What are you talking about? Paul, when he writes us here, is speaking either about the Jews or he's speaking about apostles, just the 12 apostles. And if I, just to make it simple, I think he's talking about apostles alone. He says us, and he's talking about the apostles. So every time we read us or we in the next passage, you try to hear who you think he's talking to, but hang with me till the end. So he goes on to verse four and he says, speaking of God, according as, as he, God the Father, have chosen us. This is the second us he's used in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That must be talking to me. I'm supposed to be holy and without blame before God, so it's speaking to me. It's not. Again, most people today apply the us or we to themselves, referring to them, and, but they are not. God has chosen in himself before the foundation of the world the apostles that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. He is still talking about them. He goes on, verse 5, having predestined us. Everyone who reads that thinks it's talking about Christians, the whole body of Christians. But I say, having predestined us, the apostles, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he has made us, the apostles, accepted in the beloved. Verse seven, in whom we, the apostles, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Verse eight, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. You got all that? That is, again, Paul has mentioned us or we crowd uh, in the last six verses, six times. He's talked about an us and a we. That's, that's a group of somebody. God the Father has elected, chosen, predestined from the foundation of the world. I'm telling you, the apostles, according to the good will of his pleasure, to be redeemed in the precious blood of Jesus. Why? When? Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. Verse 10 tells us that the reason God has chosen and predestined the apostles, the us and the we's, was so that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him himself. The dispensation of the fullness of times phrase has been misread and misinterpreted for ages by Christians and religious groups who think that the dispensation of the fullness of time started at Jesus' birth and continues out to our day today, or the dispensation of the fullness of times was the restoration of the gospel through the Mormons. They called the Mormon church since 1820 till now the dispensation of the fullness of times. It's been misappropriated by many people. Not so. The word dispensation is oikonomia in the Greek, and it means an economy. 
Those who are familiar with campus learn that we talk about the economies, and anciently an economy was a master plan that a householder had of how his house was going to run at the beginning of it running. We are going to save. We are going to be frugal. We're going to clean every Friday. It's the economia of that age, right? And so in other words, it's the age management approach of any business anciently, especially a household. And here it means the economy that God established when everything would come together in one so he could make Christ all in all. Here Paul speaks of the oikonomia of the fullness of times, a period when the consummation of the preceding ages came together and culminated, hence the fullness of times, into one place where the new oikonomia, the new economy, could launch forth, in this case, to a waiting world. What did God intend to do in this period called the dispensation of the fullness of times? The next line tells us that he might gather together in one, I believe that is this whole group, the whole world, forever and ever, in one, all things which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That's called victory. That's called total victory right there. All right? All heavenly inhabitants and earthly into one common denominator. That's why I hate denominationalism because it creates many denominators. No. So that is the victory Christ had already, where he has gathered together and won all things that are in heaven and earth into himself. We're not waiting for this to happen. Jesus isn't waiting to have the victory. Uh, He has had it, and it all happened in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in and through himself and his apostles, who from the foundation of the world were predestined to come in and do that very thing. And so we read the next line where Paul says at verse 11, speaking of God, and he uses another we, in whom also we, the apostles, have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we, the apostles, should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. That's the end of the we's and us's in this introduction of the uh, Ephesians, all right? The we's and the us's, the apostles, were predestined, not believers, just them. Whether you agree with my assessment or, or not, it is now where Paul makes a shift. You ready? He's been talking about them as apostles, predestined from the foundation of the world to bring in the dispensation of the fullness of times. And at verse 13, he then says, in whom ye, he's been talking about us and we the whole time. Now he turns his attention to his audience, the reader, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in verses 4 through 12, Paul speaks of a special apostles who were predestined from the foundation of the world to bring in the dispensation of the fullness of time. He clearly explains what they were called to do. That is not applicable to all Christians, like the insipid Calvinists try to suggest. But at verse 13, Paul shifts into another group, the ye's and the yours. Perhaps these were the Gentiles in that day who uh, Paul refers to as the ye's. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Nothing about predestination here anymore. Because he's talking to believers now. And they are the ye's he's speaking to. Five times he refers to the non-apostles as the ye's and the yours. And, 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 and um, nothing about predestination. And then finally, he brings both groups together. The apostles and the believers, verse 14, which the Holy Spirit of promise is the earnest of our inheritance. Our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. In the past 10 minutes, I have explained to you the scriptures that Reformed theologians use 
to convince people, unsuspecting people who haven't been able to study the word, that predestination is a concrete biblical tenet that you must understand in order to understand Calvinism. And in those last 10 minutes, it was shot to hell just by reading just the context of what Paul was having to say. One more observation. We open up the phone lines. And before we wrap up the show, if we don't have any calls, and uh, this was uh, a revelation to me recently, not a revelation from God to me. It just spoke to me deeply. And I hope you'll uh, take the time to try to listen to it. Um, as I've lived my life, I've experienced formal education and organized sports and community groups and, and um, institutional religion and occupational uh, employment and uh, even seven years on a live television show. And um, I've come to see firsthand that I have the tendency to make people hate me. I just make them hate me, okay? And, uh, and so they really get angry, even hateful. They think the worst. And it's not like, poor me, I, I, someone said to me, you bring it on yourself. And that is true. That's true. Uh, but like Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And because I insist on seeing my life and living my life for what it is, I have to make a confession that if I have problems with people hating me in my jobs and in my community and on the television show and in my interaction with people in different ways and now online by posting one thing and there's that, then I have to look at that common denominator and that's me. I have to say, what am I doing? And I've had this conversation with my wife many times. What is it about me that I'm always getting a certain segment of society to just hate my guts, right? And so looking deeper, I can see the anger directed toward me is especially true when we're talking about uh, my approaching long-held traditions, established cultures, uh, long-standing sets of rules of engagement enforced by some sort of authority or not. And so if you knew me, the more unencumbered and free something is, like if I was to show up to a a pool volleyball game, I'd have great fun and no one would really hate me. Or if it was sitting and conversing at a table, very few people hate me. Um, but whenever I get involved in things that have built-in culture or authority or sets of standards and rules that demand allegiance from anybody, especially to those in religion, it really, I really have the ability to get people to get angry. So as a means to survive on most simplistic terms, most people size these facts up by saying, I'm just rebellious, or uh, uh, I, I won't re obey the rules. And admittedly, it seems like that's the overall thing, but really with my honest of heart, I don't like unrest. I don't like upheaval. I don't like to see people get it at each other. I don't like it. Uh, it really does bother me. So I like harmony and I love peace and things running smoothly. So I have to look deeply into my heart and try to say, why do I have this effect so strongly on people when my normal person really does not like unrest? It used to like unrest, used to live for it. Now I really hate it. So early morning insights, I decided to ignore all the things that I could say. You know, what are your rebellious nature? Why don't you just get along? Was it your upbringing? Uh, you know, are you possessed with a devil? And I decided that relative to the Christian faith and the anger and animus I draw out of people who claim to love Jesus too, I had to start by asking, what is Christianity? I started with that principle. It was early in the morning, I'm thinking, what is Christianity? And I figured that I could discover the answer to this I might be able to decide why I'm constantly making people who are in Christianity angry with, with me. And so I had to first say, well, what is Christianity? So I could define it. And then once it's defined, I could then say, oh, now I see why they hate me. Now you might think, well, it's obvious, you idiot. You're always saying things that, that people, but it's not that simple. And I'm going to show, show you why. So the idea, came, the idea came to me that 
when we think of Christianity, it's not just um, it's not just one answer. And I'm going to propose to you that the question, what is Christianity, is broken up into four questions. Okay? The first one is, what is Christianity in relationship to uh, God from, from God to man? What does God, how does he define what Christianity is? And can we use that? And I would suggest that if we look at God and we look at man, that God to man Christianity can be summarized in John 3.16. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that who should believe on him, uh, who sort of believed on him, should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe that if we want to summarize Christianity of God giving it to man, it's John 3.16. Now, that might be simplistic and there could be a lot more, but let's just go with me for argument's sake. That is God's definition of Christianity. Okay, at this point, I'm in harmony with any Christian. I believe that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believeth on him would not perish and have everlasting life. And so... I agree with Christians, Christians agree with me, that, and so on point one, there's no problem. No one's going to hate me because I agree with this premise, all right? So I typically don't make anyone angry when we talk about this subject. They could say, do you believe God so loved the world? He gave his only begotten son, that who should believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life? I'd say yes, and they'd say, so do I. Hey, we're friends. So it's not that. The next thing I had, had to look at is, well, what is Christianity in terms of from man back to God? All right, what is that Christianity? And are people hating me because this is messed up? And so I had to think, what is it? And from human beings to God, it appears that our receiving accepting, believing that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that we choose that by faith and, uh, and then we choose to follow Jesus because he gave his life for us. So I think that that is man's response to God's definition of what Christianity is. Man's response to God is, I believe, I have faith, and I will follow. Okay? And so on that point, I don't think there's a Christian on earth who would disagree with me. And I don't disagree with them. So there's not going to be any hatred coming out because I agree that we are supposed to accept or receive or believe that God gave his son and we follow him by faith. And we walk with him the best of our ability. Now things can get a little argumentative on point two. By the way, this is point one. And this is point two. Things can get a little argumentative here because some people will, insi will insist that God is the one who gets us to believe. You don't, you don't get to receive it. You don't get to accept it. And then you can enter into Calvin, Arminian arguments. But if we just strip all that away, bottom line, number two usually doesn't create too big of a problem in terms of people hating me. I believe that you have to receive Christ by faith. It is by uh, grace we are saved through faith, through Jesus Christ, and, and that we follow him. I believe that, and Christians believe that, so there's no animus there. So far, so good overall, with a couple exceptions. Not too much animus towards my person so far. But we have another couple parts to go. The third question is, what does Christianity mean from the believer to others. What does Christianity mean from a believer to others? Generally speaking, most will define this as love. We'll say the answer to this is love. And being those are the two great commandments, most Christians agree. Now, there, there's a rub here because how, what that love looks like can be argued. So at point number three, from a believer to others, Christianity is love. 
Point number three can get a little dicey because some believers think it's important to go out on the street corner and tell everybody you're going to burn in hell forever because you don't follow Christ and that that is loving. And then others are more liberal and they say, love is to just go by what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. It's patient, it's kind, it's long-suffering. That is real love. And you don't need to get in their kitchen. And so we have some disagreements on how to define number three. But nevertheless, relative to, to my person, there's not too much hatred going on over uh, uh, too much. It's, it's a lot more than number two. It's a heck of a lot more than number one. But, and so there is a little bit of division there. But nevertheless, I don't think it's too bad. So I think that be, just like the differences between liberals and conservatives in politics, there's always going to be differences on number three. Christians will always debate with each other on how to really show love to other people. I think it's defined by the scripture and tells us that it's a spiritual thing and not necessarily a physical thing, but that can be debated and, you know, there's always going to be uh, debates. What I'm trying to say is if I stay on the side that telling people they're going to go to hell and burn forever because they're not Christian is loving, if I move from that position to the more liberal kind of love, people will be angry at me. And if I go from the liberal kind of love to the you're going to burn in hell kind of love, people will be angry with me. And so what I say that to that is, it's not personal. I'm not being hated because I differ with people on that point. Because all Christians differ on that point. And so it's not me personally. So I, I can stop looking inwardly to see what I'm doing and what it's about me to be hated so bad. I can move on realizing that point number one, point number two, and point number three, I have in common with most Christians and I am not being overly ostracized or uh, hated because of these things, right? So this leads me to the fourth and final perspective. And that is, we've discussed what Christianity is from God to man. We've discussed what Christianity is from man to God. We've discussed what Christianity is from believers to others. There's one more category that has to be included here. And uh, I would suggest that it is, what is Christianity from other Christians to an individual Christian. This is the final frontier. This is number four. What is Christianity from other Christians to of another, another individual Christian? How do my group of Christian friends, the 10 of us sitting around, what do we think of Joe, the Christian who's across the way having coffee? How do we as Christians perceive the individual? That's bringing it all the way down in kind of a Descartes way. We're kind of deconstructing all the way down, and now we're going down to looking really at the self. How do other Christians see individual Christians, right? And when I arrived at this part of the definition of Christianity, the light came on. And I, the mic went off, but the light came on. Are we still on, Seth? All right. In points one, and there is almost universal agreement that there is, that is the definition of Christianity to some extent. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Although Calvinists would redefine choosing and giving, and etc. In point two, there's a great deal of agreement that the definition of Christianity is we believers respond in faith to God giving us his son, and then we seek to follow him. That's man's response to God, and that's what Christianity is there. In the third way that we define Christianity as believers who have faith in his son, we are to love. And most Christians agree that is the operative thing to do as believers is to love. And there are differences. We're starting to grow in some differences there, but we talked about that. But when it comes to the fourth way on how we define what Christianity is, I've discovered why so many good believers who follow Jesus hate my guts. They hate what I am personally as a Christian. 
which can also be restated that they hate what I am as an individual, as a human being on this earth. In their minds, Christianity cannot just be defined as God so loved the world, number one, that we are to respond in faith, number two, and that we are to love others, number three. There's, this fourth category is really important to this segment of Christians. They add that Christianity is defined by something other, something more, something added. And as I realize the root of Christian animus against my person and the things I say and do, I'm not personally or individually what they believe a Christian should be. So we have to ask ourselves, how often are we guilty of that? How often am I guilty of that? I'm guilty of it. That person is not individually the kind of person I think they should be. I agree with them and they agree with me on number one. I agree with them and they agree with me on number two. I agree with them and they agree with me on number three. But when I look at their person, no, not acceptable, right? So what is an individual Christian and how are they defined by other Christians? Because apparently to many believers, points one, two, and three are not enough. So what is the answer to this fourth part of defining what Christianity is? Some will say that Christian, Christians, in point number four, individual Christians must also be known by their theological stances. I don't agree, and those who think this matters get angry at me. Number one, number two, and number three, not enough. You have to also agree with our denomination, our theology, our dogma. They've added that, you see. It contains and carries some theology, true, the things I've written one, two, and three, but Christianity is not theological when it comes to the individual in question. Yes, questions one, two, and three, we all agree upon. Those are theologically based, but that's not enough. People in point number four want more and demand more of others theologically. And if others don't rise up to that occasion, they are hated or at least cast off or at least ostracized by other Christians. Some define Christianity in the individual by science. In other words, my science or non-scientific views, if they concur with theirs, theirs, then science or lack thereof defines me as an individual Christian. And if my science is not in accordance with others, then I am not accepted. I am hated. I am a old earth, uh, whatever, flood person. Ah, I am not. Points one, two, and three, not enough. Point four, I will hate you. Not so in my estimation. Christianity might include some scientific views or might lack scientific views, may or may not, but an individual can or cannot be uh, a scientist and it doesn't mean they should be hated as a Christian. Some make Christianity philosophy and again, all the same approaches. Some say that Christianity is um, the group you associate with. Some say Christianity is lifestyle practices. If you smoke cigarettes, you're in trouble. You drink alcohol, you're in trouble. Some uh, uh, cultures, Christian cultures, have a thing about weight. If you're too heavy, they will talk about your weight because you are apparently a glutton. And uh, so much they malign and attack a brother who completely agrees with them in points one, two, and three. So it's not occupational, it's not vocational, it's not a system, it's not a club, it's not theological, it's not philosophical, it's not scientific. So when I think of it and I try to see what I think is the best approach to Christianity in this fourth category, I want to suggest this final point to you before we wrap it up. I've touched on it before. I would suggest that the best individual approach to Christianity is artistic. Is artistic. 
that if people embrace Christianity as an art instead of as a science or a theology or a doctrine or a practice or a group or this, if they see it as an art, they are closer, maybe not perfectly, but they are closer to maintaining or possessing the proper characteristics of a Christian than if they base individual Christianity on any other characteristics. So in other words, the traits that are true and tried and true artists understand, not pretentious, elitist, entitled artists, but if the principles that abide in a true artist are the same principle that a Christian applies to God in Christ, they're in good standing, you see. What are these traits? True artists are fearlessly committed to truth. The truth about their art as far as they can find it. They maintain a personal integrity over their art. They won't sell it out for something lesser. They are fiercely committed to their art. Uh, they possess untainted sincerity. When you see pieces of art that aren't sincere, you see ugly art often. When you see someone who's committed to their art with sincerity, what is in their heart flows out to the marble or to the canvas or to whatever art they are presenting and, or the book you're reading. And when you see they have given part of themselves honestly, you relate to it because it's that human factor that's present. So they have a sold out relentless commitment to their craft. So if you take those characteristics in an artist and you apply it to a Christian, a Christian would be sold out to their Christ with the same relentless commitment. They would be uh, committed to truth. They would, um, they would be untainted in their sincerity for Christ and God. They would not let philosophy and, and theology and science get in the way. They're artists. And simultaneously, they would in, allow other people to express their artistic sensitivities without repercussion. Why is this, do I propose, the best approach to the individual part of being a Christian? Because a true Christian artist will allow a live and let live attitude because everyone is trying to express their art in the faith. But a, a, a theologian will cut off others based off theology. If an artist cuts off others because of the art, they're not a true artist. Because a true artist is, is really focused on sincerity. And if someone is sincere in the expressions of their art, they're welcome. So you don't have, you could have, I suppose, some division between what are, appear to be insincere artists, Christian artists, and sincere artists. And that could be a problem. But I still think it's the best approach to the, the way we see individuals through an artistic characteristic rather than through a theological, scientific, philosophical, or cultural uh, group uh, thing. So like secular artists, the Christian artists would challenge and question things. And they would challenge and question where we've been and where we're headed. They t artists typically do not say, I'm, not, I'm gonna stay at the same level I began with. And so we see that Christian artists would change as time goes on, as they grow and mature. You know, that is not embraced with theological Christians. Uh, and maybe more with scientific, I don't know. So when we speak of Christian artists or any true artist for that matter, it goes without saying, I'm not talking about the pretentious entitled artists that our world has and those, that type of thing. God is the greatest creator, artist ever imaginable. He imbues his creations with that ability in some sense or another. I'm not just talking about fine arts. I'm not just talking about uh, arts that we see. I'm talking about anything is the true art. My wife pointed that out. There are mathematicians who are mathematician, uh, mathematical artists, even though math mathematics is such a rigid uh, uh, approach. It's the temperament. Are you sincere? Are you devoted? Are you unashamed? Are you open to other people? Are you bent on growth and progress. I would suggest to you that like any true Christian, Jesus uh, 
who Jesus loved, anyone who followed him, he loved. It was that sincerity. It wasn't the theological or doctrinal or other issues that get in the way. And so, um, to admit that Christianity is, in addition to points one, two, and three, best described and lived as an art, is to open up the faith to the subjective expression. It's to allow all artists, the juggler, the, the fine artists, the whatever, it allows all of them to coexist within uh, the faith. And to me, that will eliminate believers looking at an individual if the believers have that idea that the art Christian is perhaps one of the best. Uh, follow the creator's footsteps in the spirit, though. If you follow that temperament, you will be hated. I guarantee you. Uh, just don't ever hate back. Speak the truth. Speak it clearly. Try to love your audience. They may hate you for it, but they hated him first. Uh, the guy who created everything. So in closing, just remember, we are going to be uh, interviewing McKenna Denson in two weeks. And uh, we, uh, we will proceed from there. And right now I'm out of stuff. I don't think we have any calls. So we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.